All of you? Big good afternoon, I guess. <laughs> I guess this uh, announcement I should repeat. Uh, essentially, that we not bring foods containing leavening on the Sabbath before Passover. Uh, that's the only one that's... Of course, we don't during the one during Passover, obviously. And this isn't done for some self-righteous doctrine of let's uh, double up on being righteous or keep an extra day. Nothing to do with that. It's simply a, a matter of housekeeping. Uh, they'll get the hall all cleaned up after our last pot potluck uh, before that. And then that day, since it's so close to Passover, it makes it difficult to re-clean and re sweep and re-unleaven the halls. So, uh, I know everybody's trying to make everything they can to eat up before the feast, <laughs> and it would be nice to pawn it off on us at a potluck, and we'd appreciate it and enjoy it, but uh, for sake of those doing the preparations, it's a good idea, this year at least, not to bring anything leavened to the potluck just before Passover. <clears throat> you may remember a couple of weeks ago I went into bearing much fruit and spent some time in Genesis showing uh, some things there in the very beginning and how uh, they had much fruit there in the garden. Everything was producing and even the tree of good and the tree of evil were producing but there was a fruit there that represented evil that God had told them they should not eat of, and they ate the wrong kind of fruit, and all kinds of bad things happened. Uh, immediately thereafter, human nature just blossomed overnight, or over minutes, because they went and hid themselves right away. So, the kind of fruit we bear is very important, but we went into John 15 and John 12, and one of the main points that I made there was that we are here to produce something beyond ourselves, something more than we are. So, it has to do with relationships with each other, with other humans, with our families, <clears throat> and, of course, with God himself, though we produce good relationships. And Christ was talking about there, especially in John 15, 16, and 17, and what he wanted his relationship with himself and with the Father to be. And we closed it off with that, uh, showing you have to reach out and produce something beyond yourself. Uh, an individual who's all wrapped up in himself makes a pretty small package. Uh, so you strip the paper off and you expand beyond yourself. I think a lot of people who are self-centered tend to think of themselves as important. Now, they may have a feigned humility of one type or another, 
but if they're self-centered, they're not centered on those around them. And what they are doing and what they are thinking or what they are producing is what they want, and they don't think much about those around them and what they might want. Because what they want is the center of their attention, and therefore they think it ought to be the center of everybody else's attention. Um, You've seen people, I've met them here, there, and everywhere in, in life, under many, many different circumstances, and they primarily want to talk about themselves and the things they're interested in. They don't care really what you're interested in, they want you to be interested in what they are interested in. So they'll just talk on and on and on and on. Uh, I've heard women say that Maybe they were dating, trying to find somebody, and uh, they run into these guys that just talk about themselves, run on. Hour after hour after hour, they talk about themselves. I guess they're interested in themselves, and they think you ought to be too, so they'll tell you all about them. And women can do the same thing. I've heard more women complain about men being that way than I have the other way around. But women have their own way of being self-centered in what they're doing. So, it's human. It's not male or female. It's just human. So, how does what you're doing make someone else feel? Uh, or do you need to open your eyes, look around, and widen your world? Uh, so you're not a small package wrapped up in yourself and hoping others will get wrapped up in you as well. That just doesn't work out too well. And one of the main points to back that up there in John was that we produce more, more than we are. A grapevine is a grapevine, and its job is to produce more than it is. More grapes, therefore more seeds, therefore more plants. It is to expand. And he told us that as humans as well, to expand the population of the earth, which we've done quite nicely a time or two. Uh, and that's, as I said, about the only thing he's ever told us to do that we liked and were willing to accomplish. But we did do that. On the other hand, uh, what kind of produce has it been? As God looks down at all the vines, like let's say each person is a vine, and he looks down right now at eight and a half billion vines, of what has been produced? Uh, not very much that's truly edible or gratifying or wonderful or that we would want to imbibe of. Most of what has been produced has not been very good. So there has to come a change somehow and produce what God wants. And that's looking beyond ourselves as well. Because human beings on this earth, for the most part, don't have room for God. Uh, lip service only, maybe, but they're busy producing what they want. And what he wants means nothing to most people on this earth, if they even think he's there. 
Let's go to Proverbs, and I want to read quite a few scriptures to back this up and more. Proverbs 12, I'm working on verse 30, but let's start in 28 because it begins there, really. He that trusts in his riches shall fall. Now, there are people who could say, well, okay, I'll produce, I'll produce dollars. I'll produce riches. And they go about their life trying to get wealthy, trying to get rich, thinking that that is going to be something that is good. And yet, wealth and riches very, very frequently don't bring about any kind of good thing. Uh, families who have a lot of money often are just as uh, disruptive and as, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, dysfunctional, is poor families. In a lot of cases, they're worse. Uh, they're in, they have money to get into more trouble, <laughs> all kinds of trouble. So, he doesn't mention money in the Bible in terms of fruit. We'll, discuss, we'll talk more about what producing fruit means to God, what kind of fruit he wants, and how we go about it. But if you trust in your riches, you'll fall. Not the right kind of fruit. But the righteous shall flourish as a branch. Now, if you have money as your goal, and you think that's the fruit you want to produce, that's primarily for you. Uh, I've known very rich people who, oh my, they won't buy lunch for their family, hardly, because they're all tied up in their money. I had an uncle like that. He had millions that he had made, not necessarily farming wheat, but in the stock market. He had a knack for it. And uh, you couldn't buy him, get him to buy lunch if they went out. And his wife had to drive a 30-year-old car, not because it was an antique or a nice classic, but because he wouldn't buy her a new car. Uh, it's just old, is all it was. <laughs> So, yeah, you get wrapped up in yourself and your money, and that doesn't work. But the righteous shall flourish as a branch. Now, contrast what a branch does. A branch is on a tree that's connected to the roots, and through that tree and up into that branch come nutrients, water, minerals, the vitamins, whatever that needs to provide food for the fruit that it's producing. So it's, it doesn't have a mind, but in that sense, let's say it's thinking of the berries or the fruit that are growing on it, and first concern is get nourishment clear from the ground up to that branch and into that grape or orange or whatever is up there that's growing. And it also produces leaves all around the fruit to help protect it from various things. Uh, and the wind, the limbs, the leaves all help protect the fruit. So the job of that branch then is not to think of itself, but to think of what is growing there. And one branch might have many, many pieces of fruit on it, 
And it has to take care of all of them. So it can't be just thinking of itself, but of all that that it needs to accomplish for the sake of the purpose of that tree. Whether it be an orange tree or an apple tree, it has a different purpose, and that is to produce a different kind of fruit, but nonetheless to feed and succor and take care of that which it is producing. So it is doing something beyond itself. He that troubles his own house shall inherit the wind. If we frustrate members of our family, we upset them, we do things that uh, cause them uh, grief, uh, we're wrapped up in ourselves so much that we don't think about how it affects them enough, maybe. And that doesn't work out. They'll inherit the wind, and the fool shall be servant to the wise of heart. Somebody who's wise will think of what they say, what they do, in relationship to their family, and how it affects them. And then it goes on to say, in that light, that the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that wins souls is wise. So, two parts to that. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. Life is a good thing. We are all having life right now, those of us who are here or who are listening. And depending on our age and health and so on, it's, uh, the quality of that life is up or down one way or another. And we all go through difficulties, but we still want to live. The goal is life. That is the strongest drive that human beings have, is to live. They have other very strong drives, but life is the first and greatest, strongest. Because you can't do anything else you want to do unless you're alive. Um, a wise dog is better than a dead lion, is another proverb. <laughs> dead lion just can't do much. So, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. What is a tree of life? A tree of life is that which produces life, not just in itself, but produces it in others. Now, God did not want Adam and Eve to partake of that tree of life, because they would have become immortal and eternal, and he did not want them to take it under the wrong circumstances. So once they had already disobeyed and taken of the tree of evil, they could not have been trusted not to take part in the tree of life. And as carnal, wretched human beings at that point, uh, he could not afford to let them have eternal life, so he put them out of the garden. And the garden was eventually destroyed. And nobody can take part in that tree unless he comes through where? Through Christ himself. It's the only way. So he intended that righteousness and life expand. That's his whole purpose, is to expand life in the universe. But it has to be the right kind of life. Otherwise, it will be curtailed. 
So if you're righteous, you're going to be producing toward the tree of life, not just in yourself, but he, but he, says, but he says here, and he that wins souls is wise. So he couples the fruit of righteousness and the tree of life with helping others see what they need to do to live as well. Set an example. Sometimes the very best thing we can do is show them how to live by how we live and what that produces. If we're living right, it should produce something that would impress people with, wonder what they're doing that makes them so happy. We often say, I know what you're doing that makes you so unhappy. We, we think we have that one figured out at least. But when we see people doing well, maybe we should wonder, what are they doing that creates that? Let's move on then to chapter 12, verse 14. A man shall be satisfied with good by the fruit of his mouth, and the recompense of a man's hands shall be rendered to him. So the hands are to produce more than they themselves are. They are tools to use to produce, and so is the mouth. By the fruit of his mouth, he's satisfied. Now, we consider the things we say. Sometimes we say, no, that was a good thing to say. I'm glad I said that. And sometimes we look at ourselves and say, oh, my, why did I say that? Uh, because the mouth will get ahead of us, and the brain needs to adjust what the mouth is about to say, or otherwise... Selfishness and pride and vanity and ego and self will come out of the mouth most of the time. That's just the way it is. The way it is because of our carnal human nature. Uh, and a few, here's another one, chapter 18. Twenty-one. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. Do you love death, or do you love life? And what does your tongue produce? It's kind of tied in with the one we just read. The things you say will help produce good feeling in life, or they will create depression or frustration or... Um, no inspiration to others. So he's telling us here, it ought to be producing that which is good, not that which is bad. So whatever fruit it produces, that's what you have. Uh, let's see. Proverbs 31 about the uh, virtuous woman, but here in verse 31, after he's gone through all the good things that a wife should do and be, he says, Give her of the fruit of her hands, and let her own works praise her in the gates. So, you go through this chapter, and she's using her hands 
to produce all kinds of things that are good. So she's not just sitting there taking care of herself, but she's taking care of her family, taking care of her husband, uh, looking after everything that she possibly can to be sure that they're right. And her reputation goes out into the community and says even her husband is an elder in the gates. Uh, he's partly prominent, partly important, if you will, partly well-known, because he has a good wife behind him who's doing all good things and helping keep the family together, the children, trying to help him be the kind of person he ought to be, and supporting him. And if he doesn't have that support, it's much, much harder to be anything in the community that you might ought to be if you had more help. So she's held up that way and give her the fruit of her hands, that which she produces. And he's already shown here that everything a virtuous woman produces should be a good thing. Uh, Paul talks about stupid, silly women in the New Testament, some who gossip all the time or talk about others or they're, they're real busy bodies. But the body isn't busy with the things that produce fruit. It's busy with busyness and self <coughs> and comparing themselves with others. So there's a good kind of fruit and there's a not so hot kind of fruit. Let's go to Isaiah 3. Isaiah 3. And here I want uh, verse 10. You say to the righteous that it shall be well with him. Uh, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Someone who is righteous, they're going to produce good and righteous things. And that's what they will eat of. They give somebody who isn't righteous, and what he produces isn't good, but he has to eat of that. And that can be pretty bad. So, he keeps contrasting good fruit from bad fruit. Uh, Isaiah 29, here in verse 15. Yeah, verse 15, I want. Woe to them that seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord, and their works are in the dark. And they say, Who sees us, and who knows us? Surely your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay, for shall the work say of him that made it, He made me not? Or shall the thing frame say, of him that framed it, he had no understanding. It is not yet a very little while, and Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be esteemed as a forest. 
So we can complain to God about how we're made or how our minds work or why He didn't give us this or didn't give us that, why we're limited in mind and talent and all the different things that we might be concerned about and say, why did you make me like this? You could have made me different. Well, yeah, he could have. I look out here and I see mostly Texans. He could have made you a lot better than he did, but he didn't. Instead, he made us the weak in the base. <laughs> I've had to conclude, just with our experience here the last 20 years, that uh, Texans must be the most weak and base kind of people there are. Because he says that that's what he'll call. And that's mostly what we got. I mean, personally, I can remember being a little kid in West Texas. And Texas was the last place I wanted to be. I didn't see anything there I wanted to brag about. But I've, I've seen people from West Texas whose mouth was so dry they couldn't talk. But, oh, they're bragging about Texas. I don't think so. Sorry. I just, I wanted out of there from the time I was six years old, I think. Give me some trees. Give me some mountains. Give me something pretty. And that's what this is talking about right here. Why did you make me thus? Why did you have me grow up where I did? Why am I base and weak? Why wasn't I mighty and noble? Well, he said he would change that, which isn't much, and make it much. So, all we have to do is submit to him and become much. He wants us to become mighty and noble and an example to the rest of the world of what he can do with something that wasn't anything. That's to his glory. But if, if we look to him, to the one who made us, and follow and obey and do what he says, then we'll be part of this fruitful field. And in that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The meek shall inherit, uh, shall increase their joy in the land, and the poor abiding among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. So, we as a church are supposed to become a fruitful field, and not only just a fruitful field, but esteemed as a forest. Lots of trees in a forest, more so than in an orchard. So he wants it to grow and have trees all over. And he equates it then to uh, the physical, well, physical and spiritual, hearing the spiritual with the ear, uh, seeing the physical and the spiritual with the eye. Those things are important, and unless you can come to hear and see the spiritual, then the physical isn't really going to matter. It goes away. I'm having trouble reading this. My left eye has been, I think I may be getting cataract over there, I don't know. But it's getting more blurry all the time, and it waters quite a bit. And I sit here, and sometimes I struggle, and you're probably beginning to notice it as I read that sometimes I pause or hesitate or have to look and try to get it to focus so I can see what it's saying. Uh, well, I look forward to not only seeing spiritually, but again coming to the point 
where my physical eye will see better. Uh, the right eye has to kind of take over and do more of the work because the left one's getting worse. Well, that's age, that's humanity, that's so-and-so, and I'm not uh, asking for sympathy here, uh, prayer maybe, <laughs> because it's important to me to be able to read the book to you, and if I can do it without stumbling and fumbling around and trying to see what it is I'm reading, um, that helps. But he wants us to produce not only fruit, but trees that produce fruit and a forest that produces other things that mankind needs. So he wants us to do something beyond our own little package. Me, myself, and I is a, is a small package. And people think of me, myself, and I more than we'd like to admit, I think, sometimes. Well, let's see, where do I want to go next? Uh, Isaiah 4, backtrack a little, and here, verse 1, And in that day seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel, only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. So here, speaking of, say, seven women, uh, not many men around, and they want something beyond themselves, which is good. In that day shall the branch of the eternal be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. And it shall come to pass that he, is left in, he who is left in Zion, he that remains in Jerusalem, shall be called holy, even everyone that is written among the living in Jerusalem. So God is going to produce a very fruitful place. And there are a lot, women are characterized in prophecy as churches. And it's coming very soon that people from all the seven church eras are going to be coming to the fruitful branch, which is the Rubabel, looking for answers, looking for what it is they're missing in need. Uh, and that will be produced by Christ and the Father, and we'll have everything we need. But God is going to use someone who is willing to look beyond himself to help others. And Christ produced that kind of fruit when he was here on the earth. He looked way beyond himself and what he might personally need in order to provide for others. And we are to be like him. So he tells us right here that's what he's going to do, and we can be part of that as part of one of the seven women who have been left out. <coughs> Aren't many men to take charge to prepare what the churches need? And the churches are languishing to this day. Who will come to Zion? Who will take hold of the true branch? Uh, Isaiah 57. We'll be here in Isaiah a little bit, it seems. Isaiah 57. 
and verse 19. I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him that is far off, and to him that is near, says the Eternal. I will heal him. So God creates the fruit of the lips. We read several verses that said that the fruit of the mouth, fruit of the lips, is important. Well, he is our master potter, and if we are thinking and doing the things he wants us to think and do, then we are going to produce peace with the fruit of our lips. And he says right off in Matthew 5 there when he starts what's called the Sermon on the Mount, that blessed are the peacemakers. You know, it's easy to make war with your lips. It's easy to cause problems with your lips. You have to think in order and control yourself in order to make peace with them. I find it much easier to create trouble in my mouth than peace, don't you? It's it's easy to create trouble, but peace is sometimes very hard to do. Because if you're going to say something that will create peace between you and somebody there, you're going to have to swallow your pride, your ego, you'll have to be humble, you'll have to be meek, you'll have to be willing to turn the other cheek, to be willing to be criticized without getting all up on your high horse and uh, getting offended. That doesn't come easy. It's hard to swallow our pride. It's hard to accept criticism that is deserved. I think as James put it, and it's even harder to accept criticism that is untrue. But he says that's the kind that is acceptable to him, is if we accept criticism even though we don't deserve it. We really didn't do what we're being accused of. Uh, That's really hard to swallow that one. You have to swallow a lot of pride to do that. But how quick is a human being to go on the defense? Oh, I did, did I? Well, but you... We always have that but you uh, because we want to retaliate. If they hit us, we want to hit them back. That's just human nature in its raw form. Peace is difficult. Uh, Let's see, where do I want to go next here? Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17. Verse 10, I, the Eternal, search the heart, I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. So God is making judgments. He's watching each and every one of us, uh, individually, personally, especially those who have been called to his truth and have been converted and are seeking to be in his kingdom, they have his attention first and foremost because they're the ones he is working with now. The others will be worked with later. 
millennium or great white throne judgment. But those of us who are called now are being considered in every way, every day. I search the heart. Now he said in verse 9 that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So God is sitting there. He's called you to be righteous. And he called you who had a deceitful, wretched heart that no man can even begin to comprehend how deceitful and wretched we are. We deceive each other. We deceive ourselves. We try to deceive God. And he's sitting there pondering what we are thinking and doing and sorting it out himself. And he's hoping that we are working at getting rid of the deceitfulness that we have. You know, most we try to examine ourselves. We try to know ourselves. But you know, you don't know yourself very well. You know what goes through your mind, and you examine it, and you make judgments on it, whether it's good or bad or whatever. But we don't truly know ourselves. Uh, take just an example. Somebody who's addicted to something, whether it be some kind of drugs or smoking or alcohol or sex or money, they're addicted to it. And you know what addicts are? Bottom line, they're liars. They lie to themselves about what they do. If they're diabetic, they lie to themselves about what they eat, and they lie to others about what they eat because they don't want to face the truth. If you're addicted to whatever it might be, I named several categories, there are plenty of others, where we can be addicted to something, but we simply don't want to admit it. And therefore, we deceive our own selves, not just others. So if you're an addict to something, that means that you're letting, you're letting it be in place of what God would have you be doing. An addict is doing something that is bad for his body and mind whatever it is that we're addicted to. And it gets in the way of our relationship with God because we will do everything we can to continue what it is that has hold of us and we'll not then do the things God would have us doing in order to get over whatever it is that has control of us. So we're automatically liars. We automatically lurk around trying to hide from others and from God and primarily from ourselves. That's who we're trying to deceive the most. Well, this won't hurt me. I'm, <laughs> I'm not an alcoholic. I only drank one bottle of vodka a day. You know, just one. We'll try to lie our way out of it. Whatever it is. You know, there's all kinds of addictions. 
So God then is looking at it and saying, what am I going to do? How am I going to handle this? How am I going to get this person to quit lying, that's against the Ten Commandments, to himself, to others, and to me, and face reality and do what he needs to do about his problem? Instead of justifying what he's doing, whatever it might be. Because if you have an addict, an addiction that is dangerous to your mind or body or your family or whatever, uh, you find ways to get around it. You find ways to justify it. Excuses for being that way. And you just flat out lie about things. If you're an addict, you're a liar. That's all there is to it. That has to be repented of, does it not? And face reality and truth. That's what God expects of all of us. So, we're deceitful and desperately wicked. So, he's searching our heart. He's working with us with his spirit. And he is going to give us whichever we turn out with. That which is good or that which is bad. We'll get the fruit of our doing. So he wants us to repair that deceit and lying and come to truth, come to repentance and conversion and changing that which is afflicting us. And he's contemplating. He's looking at. And however you turn out is how you'll be rewarded. And then he uses money as an example of this. I mentioned eight or ten. As the partridge sits on eggs and hatches them not, so he that gets riches and not by right shall leave them to leave them in the midst of his days, and at his end shall be a fool. So his goal was money. And he kids himself, maybe that he's worshiping God when all his energy and time go into making money. So he's serving the money instead of God. So he's lying to himself about what his true nature is, which is why God said the man cannot serve two masters. Uh, You'll despise one and follow the other. So it's a matter of the degree to which our mind and body is addicted to whatever it is, and whatever we are willing to do to continue as we are instead of change. And he's looking for the change. And he will reward the change with good once we produce it. So, no question in verse 9, he knows what we are. What are we going to become? Are we going to stay that way, or are we going to change some things? He that does not overcome shall not be in his kingdom. That's not a direct quote from Scripture. It's just the opposite of what it says. He that overcomes shall be in his kingdom. That's what he's expecting to happen. Hosea 9. And here, let's go to verse 16. 
Ephraim is smitten, their root is dried up, they shall bear no fruit. Yes, though they bring forth, yet will I slay even the beloved fruit of their womb. My God will cast them away, because they did not hearken to him, and they shall be wanderers among the nations. So, here we are, nation of these Ephraim, here in the end, our root is dried up. Now, there's a drought of proper food coming through the system. Nothing coming from the root to feed the branches and to produce fruit. So we're just drying up and dying as a nation. If you haven't been noticing lately, the banks are beginning to fail, and there's going to be a financial crisis again. But <coughs> I thought maybe it was coming to a head in 2008 and would go ahead and do the crash of Zephaniah 1, but it backed off, and uh, now we're in the same position, only a bigger bubble. Uh, is this it? Could be. Uh, might not be. It might go on, kind of heal itself with printing dollars and go on another year or two. But this could be the beginning of the whole crackdown. Militarily, we've ruined ourselves. We've dried up there. We certainly have no leadership. The leadership part of this country is dried completely up. And we're not producing anything anymore. God does not like that. We should be producing as a nation, as Ephraim, all kinds of good fruit to the rest of the world, to ourselves and to them as well. And yet here we are producing basically nothing at this point that is of any value to the world other than war. Not the right kind of fruit. Uh, I wrote down several here about not producing fruit. Do I? Should I read those? I don't want to discourage us. But God put them in here. Let's read a few of them. To contrast the blessings that come from good fruit, let's look at Psalm 107. Verse 34. A fruitful land, well, let's see, verse 33 then. He turns rivers into a wilderness, and the water springs into dry ground. A fruitful land into barrenness for the wickedness of them that dwell therein. He turns the wilderness into a standing water, and dry ground into water springs. And there he makes the hungry to dwell, that they may prepare a city for habitations. And then he sows the fields and plants vineyards which may yield fruits of increase. And he blesses them. So here he shows the contrast between what he'll do to those who produce good fruit and those who do not. Remember when Christ was coming and looked at the fig tree, he was hungry. He wanted some figs. And they got there and there were no figs on the tree. Now I've heard all kinds of arguments about a tree producing uh, fruit before the leaves and all kinds of things about why that tree was barren. That's beside the point. 
the point is, it had not produced, and he had expected it to have produced, for whatever reason. And it hadn't. So he cursed it, and said, you'll not produce anything ever again. Now, some people think he threw a fit of temper, and lost his temper. Uh, I don't think so. I think he saw a fruitless tree, for whatever reasons, that should have produced. And therefore, he made an example of it, that if you don't produce fruit, you're not worth anything. What are you worth if you don't produce something for somebody? Now, that fruit, I mean, that tree wasn't just there to produce fruit for itself. Does a fig tree eat its fruit? No. Vineyard doesn't eat its grapes. It drops them on the ground. The birds eat them. But it's there to produce something for someone else, be it bird or human. It's there to produce something for that beyond itself. It's not a small package wrapped up in itself. God made it to produce. And if it doesn't produce, away it goes. Now, he used the same thing when he talked about the vine there in John 15. We read a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he prunes it, and if it still doesn't produce, out it goes and gets burned up. Just like the fig tree. That wasn't an act of temper there with the vine either. It was a matter of, if, it, if you don't produce, what good are you? You're not needed by God or man if you don't produce. Isaiah 10. Verse 16. Therefore shall the Eternal, the Lord of hosts, send among his fat ones leanness, and under his glory he shall kindle a burning like the burning of a fire. And the light of Israel shall be for a fire, and the Holy One for a flame, and it shall burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day, and shall consume the glory of his forest and of his fruitful field, both soul and body, and they shall be as when a standard bearer faints. And the rest of the trees of his forest shall be few that a child may name them. So, Israel has not produced here in the end time the way it should have. And God is on the verge right now, and has already started the destruction, to bring us down to the point that it's like a child counting trees. He doesn't know how to count very high, and there won't be very many left. So produce food or die. Jeremiah 11. No, Jeremiah 4. And uh, verse 26. I beheld, and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness, and all the cities thereof were broken down at the presence of the Eternal, and by his fierce anger. For thus says the Eternal, uh, the whole land shall be desolate, yet will I not make a full end. 
<clears throat> Isaiah 5 goes along with that. We won't go there, but he talks about his church or his vineyard and how he had protected it and did everything he could for it, wanted it to produce good fruit, and then it didn't. So he says, I'm going to just clear it out, destroy it, or Revelation 3, screw it out of my mouth, uh, same analogy, because it didn't produce fruit. So I think we should be establishing here pretty strongly that it's important to produce fruit. Jeremiah 32, in verse 19. Great in counsel and mighty in work, for your eyes are open upon all the ways of the souls of men. Remember where we said there in 17 where uh, he's pondering. To give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. So the things we do, one way or another, produce some kind of fruit. The fruit of his doings either good or bad. He judges us by what we think and do. Uh, chapter 6 adds a little bit to that. Chapter 6, verse 19. Well, let's see here. Hear, O earth, behold, I will bring evil upon this people, even the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not hearkened to my words nor to my law, but rejected it. Now that shows you there, even in the Old Testament, um, the law was not limited to just what we did, but our thoughts, he considers. You'll see that really throughout the prophecies. Our thoughts were important even back then, not just what we did. We've sometimes said back then you could do whatever you wanted. I mean, you could think anything you wanted as long as you didn't do it. It's kind of the way it has been put a lot of times. That's not so. Uh, look at the Ten Commandments, for instance. Uh, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, you know, those are things that are active things that you do. You, you could think of killing, maybe, without actually doing it. And in that sense, keep the letter of the law. Now, he expanded it, of course, in the New Testament um, formally by saying you can't even hate, much less kill. But even in the Old Testament, look at the Tenth Commandment. Thou shalt not covet. Now, what do you covet with? Your fingers? Your hands? <laughs> no. It's the thoughts. It's the mind. So the Tenth Commandment really is based only on what you're thinking. It is, of course, that is as you think, so you do, ultimately. Uh, what we think leads to good or bad but God, even in the Old Testament, made it very clear that what you're thinking is important, and it's one of the big ten. 
Let's go on then to Colossians. Colossians 1. Into the New Testament again. I'm going to begin in verse 1 here. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are in Colossae, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Now, this is a very positive thing, the way he starts this out. Did they have problems in Colossae? Sure they did. <coughs> but he is attributing righteousness to them, the saints, and faithful, and peace from God. Well, peace from God upon them can only come if they are doing what they should be doing. Otherwise, they'll be lost with God. Blessings or cursings. So he was giving them the benefit of the doubt here and saying, I know you're good Christians. I know you're doing all you can to serve and obey. You know, that could be said of a lot of different groups, and I think this one. We're here to do the best we can, to do what God wants us to do. We're sincere about it. We're working at it. And yet, even then, we struggle with our human nature, trying to have the nature of God and not yet having it except by the amount of His Spirit that is in our hearts and minds because the natural, the carnal, the selfish is still there to be battled. But we're working on it. And He could give thanks for those who are there trying to make it work. I thank God for you that you're here trying to make it work. You're doing what you can. And you're not perfect. None of us are. But you're working that direction. I can go to St. George and if I find somebody working toward righteousness, man, have I made a find. Haven't yet. <laughs> I mean, I find people who are striving to be good Mormons or good Catholics or good whatever but they don't even understand what they're fighting. You do. And thank God for you. That's what he says here. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. He knew what a struggle they had, but he knew they were trying to do it right. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all the saints. So that particular congregation had a reputation for loving each other. That's a hard reputation to beat right there. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before, till the word of the truth of the gospel. And that gospel has come to you, as it is to all the world, and brings, uh, and brings forth fruit as it does also in you, since the day you heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth. So we went away from being dry branches and began trying to produce something useful for others. 
love, kindness, goodness, things that would be beneficial for others. So he said, you did that. As you also learned of Ephesus, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. That's a, that's a hard one to beat, really. You don't see that too often in Scripture, where a group of people is addressed and thanked over and over for the fruit of love that has been produced in them. That's a pretty high accolade. <clears throat> for this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and a desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the eternal unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So here they were. They had learned to love and to pleasingly bring forth fruit and good works, increasing in the knowledge of God. As you produce, you learn more. You learn more about God. You learn more about your relationship with God. Because you're doing the right things, and therefore, you're getting more and more on the same page with God, if you will. When we were first being called, we really knew nothing of God. Truly. I mean, we might have heard that he created things, but we didn't know God. And as we worked and worked and worked at trying to fit in with his scriptures, his way of life, we were getting more and more on the same page. As our evil that we naturally are is slowly being washed away, and the good of his nature is coming as a result of being washed in the water of the Word. That's what we're here to do, is be washed and cleansed in His words. <clears throat> Strengthened with all might, according to His glorious power, unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. Now, He's tying being fruitful in with these qualities. He's talking about fruitfulness and producing. So if we're to produce fruits, what does that mean to us? If I picture a grapevine, I picture grapes. An apple tree, I picture apples. I picture a Christian. What do I think of? Producing more Christian? Well, that's what you are. That's what you ought to produce. We read one verse already today that talks about, uh, let's see, how did he put it there in Proverbs? Or was it Psalms? About saving of souls. Or something like that. And bearing much fruit, then, includes strength being strengthened and then producing patience and long-suffering and joyfulness. Those are some of the fruits that we are to be producing. He names the kind of fruit he wants. 
It's a spiritual fruit. How much joy do you have? How much joy do you then cause others to see, hear, feel, and experience because of the joy that is inside you? If it's in there, does it escape? <laughs> or if you're just so happy inside, uh, do you just bottle it up and keep it in there? I am so happy. Right here, inside me, I'm so happy. Or if it's the joy of the Spirit, is it shared? Do people get around you and feel joy? That's a tough one right there, isn't it? Joy in this day and age, in this world, the circumstances we live under, it's not a very joyful world. It's, it's a tough world out here. And all that we see around us is pretty tough, whether it's on a TV or on a phone or in the news or wherever it is. There's, there's not a whole lot to be joyful about, is there, looking around us? But don't we have something to be joyful about? And that is that Christ is working in us to produce, reproduce himself. And he gives us his spirit to create that joy, to be happy and joyful for the things that we're looking forward to. And one of the ways we can express joy is in singing. God gives us song to inspire. He has music around his throne. Constantly. Uh, inspirational music. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Uh, as, as we sing the words of joy, it produces things in people. I've always felt that one very strongly. Hear special music, I mean, decades ago in church services and somebody sings a particularly inspiring song. I can just feel goosebumps all over. Sometimes it breaks me up, and I just want to cry. It's, it's so inspiring. And that's one way we can bring joy, as we have the capacity to sing, uh, is in that, and even just in singing the hymns. Uh, we need to think about it. Okay, they said page 66. Okay, I'll go to page 66, and I'll mumble these words, and I'll listen to the piano, and... Then we'll be done, and we'll have a prayer, and I'll go my way. Do you think about what you're singing? Or are you just repeating the words because they're there on the page? Those are all the psalms, the songs of God. And they sing glory to God, and they describe God's glory. And we're not just humming them, we're singing them, we're saying them. And we need to be thinking about what we're saying. That this song has a message behind it. Now we can be singing and saying, why did Dwight write it this way? Or whatever else thoughts might come, because that one's hard to sing or whatever. But no matter what and how he wrote it, the words are good. And we need to be thinking about those words as we sing it. Else why sing it? Are you singing it to God? 
than saying the words of God back to him and to each other. And so we make a, what does the Bible say? A joyful noise. A joyful noise. And he mentions patience and long-suffering here. We're to be willing to suffer along with somebody. Okay, maybe they have a way of talking, a way of expressing themselves, uh, whatever it might be that irritates us. You know, some people don't irritate you much. Some people irritate you quite a bit. Uh, some people may not irritate you at all, but those are rare. But we're to be long-suffering with whatever it is. Now, it may not be their problem. It may be your problem. Whichever way, you suffer along with it. You don't get impatient about it. You realize they're working on things. They're trying to become what they need to be. So you need to suffer along with that as they grow, as it takes time to produce the fruits of God. And if you can't do that, then you're a one that has a problem as big as theirs because you're impatient and short with them and would rather ignore them and get away from them than to be patient and suffer along with it. You're ready to throw them in the garbage bin because they aren't acting the way you want them to act. That's the reason he said that we shall not be offended. Do not be offended by anything. There is a tough one. Offended, upset, uptight at somebody is not patience and long-suffering, is it? It's self. It's my pride, my ego. They're not saying things and acting like I want them to, and therefore I'm upset. God says, don't let anything offend you. Tough call. And he says, don't you give offense. Period. Don't do it. It's a two-sided coin. You can't either give it or take it. You can't be offended one way or another. Because they're God's children, made in his image, and he loves his children, and he wants his children to be taken care of with patience and love and long-suffering and show joy with all of them. Well, it's hard to be a Christian. Sorry, it just is. But when we let ourselves get offended, frustrated with others, then those are not the fruits of the Spirit. Those are the fruits of the shortness of human nature and vanity and ego. So we have to work on that one. And none of us have ever accomplished it fully. We offend and take offense as human beings. Some more so than others because of their own background or their uh, emotional control or whatever reasons we have more or less trouble with it. But that's the goal that we're headed for. Giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet, meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the power of darkness and has 
transformed us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Boy, that's quite a promise. That's quite a condition that he's raised us from being totally deceitful and desperately wicked in the world to having a relationship with he and his son. So, that should inspire us toward love and patience and long-suffering and joy. <coughs> because we keep in mind what our relationship with God is and how blessed we are. And so is that one, your brother or sister in the church, that you're having trouble with. They also have been called out of this world and given his spirit and given conversion to one degree or another. So we are obligated to do the best we can to live with them in peace, whoever they are. And you have to work at that. It doesn't come natural. Well, I'm beyond time, so we'll stop there with some things to work on.